I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke. One of the Gospel accounts we read from John. This is Luke right before John in chapter 1. We're going to spend our time this morning in the Gospel of Luke, so find your place there and we'll get there in a moment. Perhaps you saw the news report that I heard this week that the Church of England is considering whether to stop referring to God as He after priests asked to be allowed to use gender-neutral terms instead. The church said it would launch a new commission on the matter in the spring and any potential alterations, which would mark a departure from the traditional teaching dating back a millennia, would have to be approved by the Synod. The right Reverend Dr. Michael Ipgrave said the church has been, quote, exploring the use of gendered language in relation to God for several years. After some dialogue between the two commissions in this area, a new joint project on gendered language will begin this spring. The specifics of the project are as yet unclear. The bishop's comments came in response to a question asked at the Synod by Reverend Joanna Stobart about the progress on developing more inclusive language and services. It's unclear what would replace the term Our Father in the Lord's Prayer, the central Christian prayer that Jesus is said to have instructed his followers to say together down the generations. A spokesman for the Church of England said, This is nothing new. Christians have recognized since ancient times that God is neither male nor female, yet the variety of ways of addressing and describing God found in Scripture has not always been reflected in our worship. There has been a greater interest in exploring new language since the introduction of our new current forms of service in contemporary language more than 20 years ago, end quote. While we affirm... And we have said in this very series that we're doing that God is neither male nor female. God is a spirit and God has no biological gender. Yet, is it significant that God images himself as male? That is, that he represents himself with masculine Names and titles and pronouns and never feminine ones? Is this essential to the revelation of himself? Or is it merely an arbitrary accommodation to patriarchal language? You know that I think it is very significant and very intentional by God, and not merely an accommodation. I agree with Bruce Walke, whom I've quoted before, Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke, who said, quote, God, not mortals, has the right to name himself. It is inexcusable hubris and idolatry on the part of mortals to change the images by which the eternal God chooses to represent himself. We cannot change God's name, titles, or metaphors without committing idolatry. 
for we will have reimagined him in a way other than that the metaphors and the incarnation by which he revealed himself. His representations and incarnation are inseparable from his being, end quote. I agree. I think it is very significant. We might ask why, if God is neither male nor female, God's spirit, why does he image himself in these masculine terms? We may not know all the reasons for that, but certainly it communicates that God in his rulership, his provision, his protection, that he's the savior. It's communicating something about his function, his role, masculine roles by God's design. Now, again, I do want to always insert here a caution. God is not male or female. Men and women, as we've seen in our study, are equally made in the image and likeness of God. Both are necessary as image bearers. And yet, as we've seen in our study, men and women are different and complementary in design and function. So our series entitled God's Grand Design, The Beauty of Biblical Complementarity. It's what we are endeavoring to see, God's wonderful complementary design of men and women and how it is lived out amidst God's people. So for the first five Sundays of this series, we've been in the Old Testament, laying the foundations of complementarity from the first three chapters of Genesis, indeed seeing that God made humanity in only two sexual kinds, male and female, and that male and female are, as I just said, equal in dignity and personhood because they are equally made in the image and likeness of God. And yet we saw he designed them different, an intentional design. And we drew from that, from Genesis 2 anyway, a, a basic Headship of man and a basic helpership of the woman in God's design, especially as displayed in marriage. That most sacred and unique union of man and wife. We saw that, yes, sin in the fall, Genesis 3, brings distortions and effects to the primary functions of the man and the woman. Yet... God's basic design continues, even though now often distorted and abused. So then we next spent the last two Sundays just observing what I called Old Testament patterns in God's people, Israel. What do we see in God's people, the pattern of this complementarity? And we saw these patterns. We saw, indeed, a basic equality of men and women before God in worship and in prayer. We also saw the priority of male leadership throughout the Old Testament, unequivocal. We looked at the patriarchs as they formed the early nation of Israel, the tribes and the elders, the priesthood, who are the spiritual leaders in Israel, and the monarchy, the kings, all who were men. We saw that unambiguous, unequivocal pattern of male leadership. And then last Sunday, we looked at examples of godly women 
And we saw how indispensable women are in the role in redemptive history. Their courage, faith, and crucial help. So we highlighted multiple women that are on display in the Old Testament and how essential, irreplaceable they are in God's kingdom plan. And yet all of that was within this framework of biblical complementarity. That is, women, as we saw them in these extraordinary roles, yet not replacing men in official positions of leadership, but serving in crucial, faith-filled, indispensable ways. This morning, we turn the page to the New Testament, to Jesus and the Gospels, to Jesus and the Gospel accounts. And here, as we open the New Testament, and we're going to spend all our time in the book of Luke, this Gospel account this morning, we are concerned primarily with the question, what did Jesus do and teach in regard to men and women. What did Jesus do and teach in regard to men and women? Did he follow the general pattern that we observed in both creation and the Old Testament, or did he replace it with his own teaching? Now, that's a, that's a very important question because... If anyone could and might institute something new in this regard, it was Jesus. Because when he does come, he inaugurates something radically new. It's called the New Testament, after all. It's the New Covenant. And that New Covenant fulfills and, in effect, replaces Old covenant forms, right? Like the temple and sacrifices and priesthood and diet laws. Something radically new in the fulfillment in Jesus and the inauguration of the new covenant. And so we might ask, is this some of this patriarchy that we saw, some of this father rule or this complementarity of men in positions of leadership, is that one of those forms that is replaced with this newness that Jesus brings? That's a valid question. So that's what we want to see. Beginning with Jesus and the Gospels, and then eventually including the whole New Testament, which is the unfolding of the New Covenant. So that's where we're going. This morning and over these next several weeks. As we start this morning... Jesus and the Gospels, before we see what Jesus did and taught, let's first see again who he was as our Savior. So I want to begin here. So Jesus and the Gospels, I'm going to give you kind of three categories here to see who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Let's start with who Jesus was. Jesus, first point, Jesus is... The incarnate son. He was a man. He is a man. But he came as a man. Jesus is the incarnate son. 
He takes on human flesh as a male. Now, I touched on this briefly a couple weeks ago. And so I want to develop it just a little more this morning as we open the pages of the New Testament and see Jesus. Was it, was it significant and necessary that our Savior took to himself human nature as a man and not a woman? Was that significant or was that arbitrary? There's only two choices. Got to be one or the other. Roll the dice. Guess it'll be a man. Is it arbitrary? Is it just an accommodation or was it significant? Have you ever thought about that? Now, let me stress right at the beginning that it was absolutely essential and the most essential thing that our Savior was a human being. That is, that he came fully as human to save men and women equally. He must be fully human to represent us and die for our sin. So yes, that is absolutely essential. Yet, his humanity was not generic, but gendered. He was a man. Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at several texts in the book of Luke. Let me read verse 26. This is that familiar, perhaps, account of the angel's announcement to Mary. Now, this was our text on Christmas Sunday morning, several weeks back, that we developed this text. But now, just looking at it through this angle of Jesus coming as a man. So I'm just going to read it again. And as I read it, I want you to listen for sonship language, the language of son here and how significant it is in this text. So let me read it. Verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. For behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the offspring will be called Holy, the Son of God. We'll stop there. We have here the fulfillment of that promise to Eve, remember way back in Genesis 3, of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And we find out here through this most miraculous type of conception that indeed he is the seed of the woman and not directly the seed of man, but is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's so unique here, right? We thought on that on Christmas. All those 
quote-unquote miraculous births that we mentioned last week through the Old Testament, including Elizabeth just before this text, are all culminating in this most miraculous birth of Messiah coming conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. An incredible role that she has. Again, that conception, that way, is pointing to his divine nature. And this is what makes this question important as we think of Jesus coming as man or woman, is to recognize that his beginning is not here. It is the God coming in the flesh, the pre-incarnate son, right? The pre-incarnate existence. That he is God coming in the flesh, taking to himself a human nature. So his pre-incarnate existence and identity is clearly revealed as the eternal son of God. Remember, God is not male or female, but that's how he is identified and that is his title. He is the eternal Son of God. We read it, Parker read it for us in John 5 this morning. Did you see all the Son and Father language? The most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, his monogenes. He comes forth from the Father. He has no beginning, and yet he's eternally the Son. That language is so important in the Bible. God is imaged as the Father. Jesus now coming is the eternal Son. Is that important, or is that arbitrary? Again, I think it has to be essential to the revelation of God. God as Father, as Creator, as Ruler, and the Son also as Creator and related to His redemptive mission that He is the Son. So when He takes on human flesh, it's not arbitrary that He comes as a man, the Son. Again, do you see the language there? Let me give you a couple notes. Why is it important to His mission, Father sending the Son? His maleness is necessary to his mission as king, savior, priest, son of man, the second Adam. All that we know Jesus is and what he came to do is connected to him being the son, a man, king, savior, priest, Son of man, Jesus' favorite title for himself. It comes out of the book of Daniel when that one, like the son of man, receives a kingdom. Jesus said he's the son of man and the second Adam. So Jesus most clearly continues this pattern of male leadership that we see all through the Old Testament. Again, our text, look back there, Luke chapter 1, verse 32, the emphasis on the son, the king. You see that? He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Again, that's a reference to the Davidic kings. They were seen as sons of the Father. They imitated the Father. Well, He will be, in an extraordinary way, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give Him the throne of His father, David. He comes as the Son of David to rule. That's what we looked at at Christmas. That's the emphasis here. He's the final king. And then even in this conception, this virgin conception, it says at the end of verse 30. Five, that this offspring will be holy. He shall be called the Son of God. 
the eternal son taking on flesh. All this essential to his role. He's the second Adam. Right? We saw the first Adam and his headship. God gave him in humanity representing us. He comes as the second Adam in that same kind of representation and headship. It's essential to him being the Savior. It's not arbitrary. So as such, second note, he embodies true manhood, saving, protecting, leading, ruling, teaching, and serving. All for our eternal good. He embodies it. If you want to see true manhood without blemish, without abuse, without distortion, look to Jesus. He embodies that in these very roles of leading and protecting and saving and ruling and teaching and serving. And that's what all of us need men and women. He is equally our savior, whether man or woman. This is what we need. And we are all, get this, we are all, men and women, the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. We'll get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. Where will we go? There's something so significant at stake here. And these things we're talking about as who we are and what Christ came to do. So we start there. That's first, just with Jesus himself. He was a man and it was intentional as he fulfills those very roles. Now let's turn to what Jesus did and how he taught. So again, I'm going to show you a couple things here. So second, second note here, Jesus appointed 12 apostles. They were men. Jesus appointed 12 apostles. They were all men. Luke, just go ahead. We're going to stay in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 6, if you want to turn a few pages ahead with me. Luke chapter 6, let's see his appointment of the 12 and that they're named. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him. And chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. So just note that. He has multitude of disciples, followers, and learners. And from that group of disciples, he chooses 12 apostles. So here he's distinguishing apostle and disciple. Other places, yes, they could be called the 12 disciples. And we know what they mean when that the 12 is used. But here he's distinguishing Disciple and apostle. This will be a unique role. And who does he choose? Well, he chooses these 12 men. Verse 14, Simon, whom he also called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. These very different, unique men fisherman, tax gatherer, a zealot from lots of different walks, he chooses to be the 12. Why 12? Well, you can't miss the symbolism, can you? It's going right back to the patriarchs. 
who were the leaders of God's people, that beginning nation of Israel, the 12 sons of Joseph, the 12 tribes we get that from. So here, what's it representing? This is a, a new people of God. It's a new, that's the point of 12. And what is their role? Why is this significant that Jesus does this? Who were these 12? What did they do? So let me give you a couple notes. He chose and prepared them for roles as official, you could say foundational leaders of the new messianic community that he will call the church, the church later on. So he chose them and he's preparing them for roles as leaders of the new messianic community. He's going to give them the keys of the kingdom. That's significant, that authority. Have you ever thought about it? As you think of the ministry of Jesus, that a primary reason and emphasis for Jesus' ministry was the training of the twelve for this ministry he will entrust to them after his departure. How much of his ministry is directed at training the twelve? I have a whole book on my shelf. It's a great book from last century, late 1800s by A.B. Bruce, just called Training the Twelve. And just, it's a look at all the life of Jesus and its emphasis on how he trained these 12, how significant this is. He's training them for when he is gone. They will assume this roles of leadership foundationally. What would they do? Let me list it. They would lead this mission, this gospel going forth. They are the eyewitnesses. They all serve this foundational role. The church will be built on the foundation of the apostles. They will teach with special revelation. They get their gospel directly from Jesus. And Jesus promises, at my departure, the Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you into all truth. He will lead you. He will cause you to remember what I taught. That's that revelation. That's a uniqueness for the apostles. That's why their words, their teaching will be authoritative scripture. That's their role. Pretty significant role. They'll give direction to the church. Remember, they're given the keys of the kingdom. They're the leaders. We'll see it in the book of Acts of the church. And the care for the sheep like shepherds. Peter, feed my sheep, right? This pastoral imagery. They will serve in this way to care for, to feed the people, God's flock, the church. So that's who they are. Significant. And it's significant that they're all men. Again, is that coincidental? Is that arbitrary? With Jesus? Let me ask this question. Was this merely an accommodation to the prevailing culture? We just expected that we men. The culture wasn't ready for women in these roles. Is that it? Since when is Jesus beholding to culture? He, Jesus was more than willing to go against culture and custom and tradition when the truth was at stake. He never compromised. Didn't matter what that culture was and how rooted in tradition it was. He, he was, if there was a truth at stake, a 
cultural suppression of that truth or distortion of it. Jesus was not afraid to go against it. Think of what he did. This is quoting James Borland in his article, Women in the Life and Teaching of Jesus, said, Jesus was not adverse to breaking social customs when he felt it necessary. He criticized Pharisees to their face in public. That was not done. He healed on the Sabbath. Again, that's really significant. That was against tradition and culture because he was inaugurating something new. He cleansed the temple. Remember, again, that was not done. This was what we do. This is our culture. Against custom, Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman. He ate with tax gatherers and sinners and even ate with unwashed hands. The point is that when moral issues were at stake, Jesus did not bend to cultural pressure. No, it was not social custom or cultural pressure that caused Jesus to appoint an all-male group of apostles. Had he desired so, he could have easily appointed six men and their wives as apostles, since the wives of the apostles frequently accompanied them. But no such arrangement was initiated, In quote. I agree. If there had been, this is, I think, really important to, to, to get. If there had been a new pattern of leadership that God wanted to establish with regard to gender roles, Jesus would have established it. Who else? But he didn't. We see the same pattern that we saw from the Old Testament and from creation of that Male leadership in God's people here with Jesus. Third, last category. He highly valued women. They were disciples. They were. He highly valued women. They were disciples. This is a place where the prevailing culture, both Greco-Roman and even some Jewish culture of the first century, was male-dominated and women-demeaning. Often, often in this culture, women were regarded as second-class citizens and inferior to men. So here's, here's, a, here's a place where Jesus pushes back against the culture. He's very willing to do this. To treat women with dignity and value. His, his regard for women is much different than his contemporaries. If you want to read contemporaries and Jewish teachers and other rabbis, his regard is much different. In rabbinic writings, rabbis, Jewish writings, women are seldom presented positively and rarely illustrate faith or theological insight. How different the Gospels are. How different. We're used to it. We read it all the time. We don't think anything of it. It is very different than the other literature of the day. Women are seen and heard from everywhere throughout the Gospels. Jesus grants them dignity and honor and recognition. In fact, just in the Gospel of Luke, I was curious, so I went through the Gospel of Luke this week. And look for places where women are the subject, the main subject of the story or the text. Whether it be at the very beginning with Mary and Elizabeth or Anna. 
whether it be Jesus healing, whether it be other descriptions, or even the parables where Jesus uses women to illustrate truth. I counted 21 passages where the focus is on women. There's only 24 chapters in the book of Luke, 21 passages. That's significant. Jesus treated them with dignity and respect. He spoke to women in public. He used them for parables. He ministered to them physically and spiritually. He highly valued women. Let me just give you two categories under this to to see this. A, Jesus ministered to women. He ministered to women very directly. So let's just look at a few. We're in the gospel. Just stay the gospel loop. Just turn over a chapter, chapter 7. There's two right in this chapter. The widow at Nain, chapter 7, verse 11. The widow at Nain. Remember the story, verse 11 of chapter 7. It came about soon afterwards that he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Imagine how devastating this is for her. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up, touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear gripped them all, and they were glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Now, if you were with us for our study of kings, you say, That story sounds a little familiar, and it should. Elijah, Elijah in the Old Testament, in the Widow at Zarephath, whose son dies. So Jesus is recapitulating these things very deliberately here in the city of Nain. But Jesus is so much greater than Elijah. As we, as we think of these stories and we look at this angle through the lens of women, don't miss who Jesus is. <laughs> right? He's the main subject of the stories. What an act of compassion. He noticed her. He spoke to her. He felt compassion. And he raised her son from the dead. Just go down the page there to the end of the chapter, chapter 7, verse 36, the anointing by the sinful woman. You remember this story? Verse 36, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table, and behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. She was known for this kind of lifestyle. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing him with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. So that's more than a year's wages. And another 50. When they were unable to pay, he 
graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wept, wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she is. But since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at table with him began to say, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The story. This notorious sinner obviously full of remorse and repentance and devotion and pouring out that devotion to Jesus that he receives and forgives her sin, transforms her. Your faith has made you well. He welcomes her. And she's contrasted with this Pharisee, self-righteous, looking down on her as a sinner. And Jesus comes for sinners like this. Who's a woman, outcast, likely a prostitute, demeaned in that society. Jesus, with dignity, held her up and forgave her and blessed her. There are other examples we could read on. I'll just list them. Women, a woman with a hemorrhage for 12 years, that flow of blood. And she was so afraid she wouldn't even come. She just in a crowd touched the hem of his garment. And by the way, that story is in the context of Jesus raising this daughter of Jairus, 12-year-old. The women crippled some kind of malady that Satan has brought on, the text says, where she is bent over. And she can't straighten up for 18 years. And Jesus just saw her, and it's on the Sabbath, and he just went over and healed her. Just the compassion to notice her. And again, it was on the Sabbath. And they're saying, you should, you, to the woman, you shouldn't have come on the Sabbath. And Jesus turns and calls her a daughter of Abraham. She's a daughter of Abraham. She should be healed. She inherits the promises. So we see Jesus minister to women. This, the other category, B, Jesus included women in his ministry. Not only ministered to women, he included women in his ministry. So if you're in the Gospel of Luke, just keep reading now. Right next chapter, chapter 8, right after the story we just read, look at verses 1 through 3. And it came about soon afterwards that he began going about from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven spirits had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So, note first, women supported Jesus' ministry. They're named here. They must have traveled with him at some level. Because that's the context here. They were traveling from one city to another, and these women were with him. 
We'll see them again at the end of the story. This the same group of women who are from Galilee there at the cross. And in Jerusalem. They are disciples. They traveled with him and it, we're told they support him out of their means, their private means. And he names three of them. Mary, we know her best, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Can you imagine the transformation of Mary and her devotion to Jesus? We don't know anything about her as far as whether she was married or not. But her devotion, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, that is, her husband's part of Herod's household, Herod's the ruler. Can you imagine? We can only imagine what it would have been for Joanna to be a follower of Jesus. I wonder what that was like, what cost that was. And then Susanna, they must have known. I take it these are probably all women that Luke talked to. Probably why he names them. Remember, he investigated everything to give his account. <laughs> there they are. They're following Jesus. Again, do you notice, though, they're not the twelve. Verse 1, the twelve were with him. Those are those apostles. And some women, too. So they're there, and yet they're not the twelve. But they are certainly with Jesus. Also, note, women were learners, disciples from Jesus. They were learners from Jesus. Again, just keep going in the Gospel of Luke. Flip over to chapter 10 with me to the very end of chapter 10. This story may be familiar to you, but let's hear it again. Verse 38 of chapter 10. Now, as they were traveling along this group, the apostles, Jesus, maybe others, he, Jesus, entered a certain village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary who moreover was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. Martha was distracted with all her preparations. She came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary. Really? Only one. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. There's two sisters. They're single, not married, no kids. And they serve Jesus. They likely didn't travel with him, but when he is near Jerusalem, he stays with them and they serve him there. They support Jesus and the apostles. And this is one of those occasions where they're going to serve them, obviously make them a meal. But Mary is there at the feet of Jesus. And that, that little phrase, you see it there, seated at his feet, that's the position of a disciple. Disciples did. She's a learner. Hearing Jesus speak, learning. And Martha is bothered by that. She needs some more help. <laughs> and she maybe is a little taken back that Mary is doing this. She should be helping and Jesus does not rebuke Mary, but he gently corrects Martha with those tender words and says, there's really, there's just one thing necessary. And that's what Mary's doing. She's learning from Jesus. What a statement. What a statement. My Jesus. Now, that's not to 
put down that kind of serving that Martha's doing. They do that all other times. It's very necessary and helpful. But Jesus is saying there, there's, there is a higher priority. There's something more essential than even that. And that something more essential is me. Learning from me. So take that to heart, women. Yes, there are things necessary that you do, and you do it well for home or service or church, but there is one thing that's really necessary, that you're a follower of Jesus. You are learning from him. Again, this is startling. This is one of those pushbacks to culture kind of places. Women did not receive teaching from a rabbi. But Jesus honored it, welcomed it, invited it, blessed it. One last one. Women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Just go all the way to the end of the book, Luke 24. Women were the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Women were. Go all the way to the end, Luke 24. And if you're there, just glance back at chapter 23. Because these women were there at the crucifixion. Verse 49 Speaking of the crucifixion now, Jesus has just died, says all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee. So these are the same women back in chapter 8. They've accompanied him all the way from Galilee. They were standing at a distance seeing these things. Can you imagine? We have never seen a crucifixion. I don't ever want to see a crucifixion. How horrific, how humiliating, how barbarous it is. And these women are watching. Their devotion to Christ. Remember, most of the apostles have fled. They're not there. These women are there watching this horrific sight, this humiliation of the one they loved. And they stay. And when his body is taken down, verse 55, chapter 23, now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed after and saw the tomb and how his body lay. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And that's what leads to chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing spices, which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his word and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also other women with them who were telling these things to the apostles and these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. It's the women who are there who Jesus honors as the first witnesses of the resurrection. We're told in the other Gospels that not only did they just see the angels and the empty tomb and believe his words, but that as they're heading back, Jesus met them. What an honor. The first witnesses of the resurrection. What a special honor. Again, we know that even in this culture, I said Jesus is always pushing back against culture that women were not considered reliable witnesses. 
Josephus, one of those contemporaries, writes, speaking of women witnessing in an official sense, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity of their sex. That's how they were viewed. That's what gives this authenticity to these accounts. Because if if you're just trying to prove Jesus raised, you know, if you're making this story up and want to prove it, no one seeking to validate the Christian faith would have, had, would have invented a woman's testimony to Jesus' resurrection. <laughs> but that's how it happened. That's what Jesus did. What an honor. And they're the first witnesses of the resurrection going and proclaiming it even to the apostles. They lead the way in fulfilling and faithfully bearing witness to Jesus. And they become examples. This is open to every believer, men and women, witnessing to Jesus, speaking forth this gospel, making disciples. They're right at the beginning. So, now that's the survey. There's much more there in the gospels. But just, I hope that survey, you you can see that Jesus maintained and more even fully exemplifies the complementary pattern both from creation and the Old Testament. And I say he even more exemplifies it because there are no abuses with Jesus. There's no distortions. That's beautiful. He highly values women and includes them, yet he maintains this distinction when it comes to these leadership apostles. So it just continues the story. Now, I, I just finish done It's a little odd to look at the gospel accounts through this lens because that's not primarily what it's written for. The focus in the gospels is not just on women or gender, but on the fact that Jesus was open to all people from all classes. Yes, women and all classes. Jesus had no particular agenda with regard to the roles of men and women. It's not what the gospel is about. We see the evidence and it's good to see it. So I just end with this. Jesus came to rescue sinners. Men and women of all social classes and backgrounds. Women, men, sinner, tax gatherer prostitute, self-righteous Pharisee. He came to rescue sinners like us, like us Gentiles even. That's the main part of the story. Don't miss that. Jesus is your Savior. See Him. Be drawn to Him. Know Him. Do you know Him? Do you know Him as your Savior? That's who we need. Let me pray for us as we finish this morning. Father, oh, what a delight to behold your son, your beloved son in whom you are well pleased. To see his tender compassion, his saving, healing work, his humiliation in becoming man and dying on a cross and the glory of his resurrection and triumphing. Set all our hope in Jesus. Whether men or women or children, may we adore him. We thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen.